Hello, and welcome to the Dr. Jocker's Functional Nutrition Podcast, the show designed to give you science-based solutions to improve your health and life. I'm Dr. David Jockers, doctor of natural medicine, chiropractor, and functional nutrition practitioner, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm here to tell you that your body was created to heal itself, and on this show, we focus on strategies you can apply today to heal and function at your best. I'm excited about today's podcast, but before we jump in, I wanted to remind you to download this month's special gift at drjockersgift.com. From keto meal plans, smoothie recipes, to fasting quick start guides, we have a new complimentary gift every single month. To get your gift, simply visit drjockersgift.com. That's D-R-J-O-C-K-E-R-S-G-I-F-T.com. Thanks for spending time with me, and let's go into the show. So this podcast is sponsored by Peak Tea. Now, Peak Tea has actually created an entire line of teas that are specifically formulated to enhance the benefits of fasting. They partnered with my good friend, Dr. Jason Fung, who is a world's leading expert on intermittent fasting. And they created these teas that are designed to shut down your appetite, to enhance the benefits of fasting and support healthy weight management. They're delicious, they won't break your fast, and they're the highest quality teas that I found. They actually are extracted via cold brew crystallization that gently preserves the active compounds at their maximum potential with no prep or brewing needed. They're 100% organic and triple toxin screen for pesticides, heavy metals, and toxic molds, which are, are really common in, in most teas. And that's why you always want to look to make sure things have been fully filtered and at their highest possible purity, like peak tea. Now, the different types that they have of fasting teas, I really like the bergamot fasting tea, which is loaded with theoflavins to nourish gut bacteria, to support digestion, to boost satiety, to beat hunger pangs, and also really good for energy and mental clarity. Bergamot rind offers a flavorful burst of citrus and its oils enhance digestion and provide unique mood boosting properties. And just like with all their teas, Peak uses the whole ground herb, not just an extract. So you get a concentrated dose of full spectrum active plant compounds. They also have a great cinnamon herbal fasting tea. They've got ginger green tea, some really good stuff. And I worked out an exclusive discount just for my listeners. You can go to peaktea.com forward slash drjockers and use the code jockers at checkout. So again, that's P-I-Q-U-E-T-E-A.com slash drjockers and enter jockers at checkout. You guys are going to love these teas. So give them a shot. Well, hey, everybody, welcome back to the Dr. Jockers Functional Nutrition Podcast. And you guys know that one of my favorite topics to talk about is blood sugar, insulin, and metabolic health. And we had a great interview recently with Dr. Ben Bickman, uh, where we went in depth on that. And this is almost like a follow-up to it, because we're going to talk about really the personalized approach to really looking at your blood sugar and how it's responding to the foods that you're consuming. And so my guest is Dr. Casey Means. She is the Chief Medical Officer at Levels, and she is a Stanford-trained physician, 
again, chief medical officer and co-founder of the Metabolic Health Company Levels, and she's the associate editor of the International Journal of Disease Reversal and Prevention. And you can find more information about her at levelshealth.com. And we're going to talk about what the best foods are for blood sugar management, for metabolic health, and how that could be variable depending on how your body's responding to the foods that you consume. We're going to talk about personalized medicine. So, Dr. Casey, thanks for joining us here. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Jockers. So happy to be here. Well, yes, for sure. And I've heard of so, several of your interviews on other podcasts, and uh, you really do a great job of explaining how important blood sugar stability is. And, you know, this, this new technology that we have now, continuous blood glucose monitoring. And so what I'd love to do is start with your story and, you know, how you went from Stanford and, and trained in in medicine to now kind of branching out into functional nutrition, integrative medicine approach. Yeah, absolutely. So um, like you mentioned, I trained as a, a medical doctor, conventional medicine. I trained at Stanford, did my undergrad in med medical school there. And then I went on to become a head and neck surgeon. So I was deep in the surgical world for about five years. And in my role as a head and neck surgeon, which is really treating the conditions of the like your nose and throat, so an ENT mm. surgeon, something I noticed um, was sort of hitting me head on, you know, after about five years, like, wow, pretty much all of the conditions that I'm treating are inflammatory in nature. They're all related in some way to chronic inflammation. So some of the things you think about are like sinusitis, which is inflammation of the sinuses and chronic ear disease, which is inflammation of the eustachian tube, the tube that connects the nose to the ear. You get um, you know, inflammation in that tube and you get pus building up in the ear. You've got Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is inflammation of the thyroid. You've got things like vocal cord granulomas, which are inflammatory masses of the vocal cords. And then lots of head and neck cancer, of course, which we know cancer has very much relationship between chronic inflammation. So it was really interesting to me to sort of step back and say, wow, this is sort of a very common theme between a lot of the conditions that I'm treating. And in some way, it didn't make total sense to me that we would be treating those conditions with surgery because chronic inflammation is fundamentally a issue with how our immune system is responding to perceived or real threats in, in the environment, in our bodies. And, you know, more and more we're learning about um, how chronic inflammation is in many ways really rooted in our everyday exposures. So what we eat, the toxins we're exposed to in our food, air, and water, um, you know, how much sleep we get, um, the stress in our lives, um, how much or how little exercise we're getting, our microbiome, all of these things have a direct relationship to chronic inflammation. So treating it with this sort of very reactionary, um, invasive, more anatomic approach with surgery, you know, there was some sort of missing, missing link there. And certainly surgeries are really important and beautiful art, but for some of the conditions really rooted in chronic inflammation, it kind of got me thinking there might be a better way to approach this. What could we be doing with sort of really personalized dietary and lifestyle interventions, really foundational help to really quell that chronic immune response, quell that threat the body is sensing, and potentially keep patients out of the operating room. You're not going to prevent all surgeries, but I certainly think there's some low-hanging fruit we could do to help people um, minimize the severity of their diseases and hopefully never have to get have them get to that really end of the line where they see me. Mm in the OR going under the knife, which is a really serious, serious thing. So that really got me on this journey of trying to understand the root causes of, of disease. And that led me to functional medicine. And so I actually stepped away from the operating room, got training with Institute for Functional Medicine, and really started thinking of disease a lot differently. I started seeing things much more as um, 
symptoms and diseases often being the branches on a, a very similar tree. And that tree that we, that, that sort of root um, that, that connects a lot of seemingly disparate diseases often comes down to things like inflammation and even deeper than inflammation, metabolic dysfunction. Um, this was talked about so beautifully on your episode recently with Dr. Ben Bickman, who is talking about metabolic dysfunction and insulin resistance. But what's so interesting is that, you know, in our country, it's it's thought that about 88% of Americans have met, or have signs of metabolic dysfunction. That was shown in a study a couple of years ago from UNC that 88% of adult Americans have at wow. least one biomarker of metabolic dysfunction. And metabolic dysfunction and insulin resistance, which are kind of two sides of the same coin, really can directly feed into inflammation. So it's all really related. And what's sort of hopeful about this is that those are things that are readily modifiable with smart choices in and how we live and what we expose ourselves to. So became really interested in that and and really this um, systems and network biology movement, which is really stepping back and saying, you know, we've we've conventionally looked at diseases in in conventional medicine as isolated silos. You've got depression, you've got obesity, you've got diabetes, you've got prostate cancer, um, you've got IBS, and that these are all things that are different, and we treat them separately with totally different with medications with totally different mechanisms. But when you step back. Um, and you use sort of more advanced research techniques like whole genome sequencing and proteomics, how can we actually see what are the molecular links between diseases? And you create a web, a network, a system, and that's really the root of systems and network biology. And when you start doing that, you see these connections. And I think the future of medicine is really treating conditions at that level, at the connections mm -hmm. between diseases. Because when you do that, you can you know, hit a lot more birds with one stone. That's sort of a negative metaphor, but you know what I mean? It's, 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 it's got, um, instead of playing whack-a-mole, you're really, you can have multifarious effects with, with some single interventions that affect that root cause physiology. So my career really moved in that direction. How can we help people understand what ties their symptoms and conditions together on a root cause? And then how can we help inspire people and enable people to make the choices day in, day out, the personalized choices for their body that actually move the needle on that sort of fundamental molecular biology. And that comes down to a lot of the principles that we all know, We, you know, how we eat, how we sleep, how we exercise, how we stress, what we expose ourselves to in the environment. Um, these translate in our bodies and the molecular information that guides our physiology. And so um, I'm really passionate about creating tools like what we're doing with my company Levels to help people understand their body and make those decisions day in and day out that move the needle on uh, on core physiology. Yeah, it's so good. And it's it's amazing to think 88%, so it's nine out of 10 people are dealing with some sort of metabolic dysfunction that's going on. Um, and the way that we re react to stress, I mean, really, you know, we all kind of react, our physiology reacts to stress the same. However, we can have a unique genetic expression. So it's kind of like you're saying, like there might be you know, same underlying factors behind why somebody might have Hashimoto's thyroiditis and somebody else might have eczema. And so, um, you know, it doesn't mean that those diseases are totally different. There's a lot of similarity and overlap and uh, some of the same factors like blood sugar uh, instability might be, at, might be at the core there. And so that's kind of what you're talking about, tying that together and going upstream and finding root cause factors. Exactly. Yeah. And um, again, I think Ben described this really well on the podcast, you know, it, it, 
something like a, a core root cause dysfunction in the body, like blood sugar dysregulation and resultant insulin resistance, that doesn't live in one little part of the body. It doesn't live in a small box in the body. It lives everywhere. We are a unified yeah. system, you know, connected by our circulation, by by everything. And so, you know, things aren't sequestered to one one small area. So that insulin resistance and the fact that the body has to produce more insulin to basically get the signal to the cells, that's being heard by every cell in the body. And so mm -hmm. While in one person that may show up as polycystic ovarian syndrome and another yeah. person that might show up as Alzheimer's and in right. another person, it might show up as non-alcoholic fatty liver disease In another person, it's hypertension in another person. It could be a more aggressive cancer. Like these things are, they seem so, so different, but I think stepping back and really thinking about the body, you know, all, all parts of the body hearing this, but some, in some people where that is expressed, where that becomes pathology is going to look a little bit different based on our unique characteristics. And if it's the ovaries that happen to be more sensitive to that insulin mm -hmm. resistance, PCOS, you know, if it's the brain, right. brain insulin resistance, neurogeneration. So, so I think it's a really, yeah, it's, it's a whole new way of, of kind of looking at things. And I think, um, there's certainly a lot of movement in books like, you know, why we get sick and, um, and others are really helping to reframe our, our perspective about, about why we have to think about some of these things like, you know, blood sugar, even if we're not diabetic, you know, well before we get to that, that advanced disease state, because even in those earlier stages, even when we're quote unquote normal with our fasting blood sugar, there's still probably a lot of optimization we could do to just sort of help, you know, our entire bodies thrive a bit more. Right. Right. Absolutely. So, you know, my health coaches and I, when we're looking at blood work, right, somebody goes in, they do a fasting blood work in the morning and typically ma major markers we're looking at are fasting glucose, fasting insulin levels, hemoglobin A1C, uh, fructosamine, right? And they kind of give us an idea of what's happening in a point of time. Um, however, you know, with what you guys are using with the continuous blood glucose, it's really looking at what's happening all the time. Like you're continuously can monitor it, how your body's responding to momentary stress, uh, food that you're consuming, things like that. Can you talk more about that and how that um, compares to testing on just a standard blood lab like we talked about? Yeah. Well, first of all, I'd say the labs you're ordering are amazing and definitely more thorough than what the average doctor or average right. patient is going to get when they walk into the doctor's office. I mean, merely adding a fasting insulin is giving you, I, you know, 10 X the information oh, yeah. that just a fasting glucose, um, is doing. And so I think that can be extremely helpful to start painting the picture of how people, where people really stand on the metabolic health spectrum. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I think, yeah, there's this, really exciting new wave of, um, of diagnostics and, and monitoring tools that are continuous in nature. So traditionally we've had these one-time point measurements for lab testing, like hemoglobin A1C, you, you get your blood drawn. It tells you about a three month average of your glucose levels. You get a fasting glucose. That's just a one-time measurement of what your morning glucose is. And by nature of actually just getting that test one time, it almost leads us to believe that that number is fairly static when in fact, fasting mm -hmm. glucose can bounce around a lot day to day. And so, but it, it kind of primes us to think, oh yeah, this is my fasting glucose. This is who I am in terms of my glucose. Mm -hmm. It's not true. Um, it bounces around day to day based on the choices we're making every day. And then what's more, 
after you get that morning fasting glucose, your glucose is going up and down potentially on a roller coaster throughout the entire 24 hours, which has a huge implication on health. And that's what you can't pick up with these one-time lab draws. So continuous monitors like a continuous glucose monitor totally open up this whole new world of data that can be really useful and really actionable to people. So just to step back on what a continuous glucose monitor is. So it's a wearable sensor, you know, in the same vein as something like, you know, a Fitbit or a Whoop, you wear it um, on your body 24 hours a day, and it's giving you a continuous uh, data stream of your glucose levels 24 hours a day. And it's doing that, um, you wear this on the back of the arm, it's about the size of a quarter, it sticks with an adhesive, and there's a small four millimeter probe that's like a piece of almost like dental floss, just four millimeters that goes under the skin painlessly. And it's sensing glucose in the background every 15 minutes and then sending that information to your smartphone. And with that, as opposed to one glucose measurement a year, you're getting like a hundred, you can get, you know, up to hundred or more um, time points of glucose per day and see a real curve of what's happening. And why that's important is because first of all, for a metric like fasting glucose, you can see how it changes day to day. You can see how if you eat, you know, a high carbohydrate meal at night, your fasting glucose could be five or 10 points higher the next morning. You can see after a meal in the middle of the day, whether your glucose, you know, spikes up to a really high level or just stays pretty flat. You can see how exercise impacts your glucose and your response to meals. You can see how something like stress, a stressful phone call, or, you know, a stressful conversation with a friend, how that affects your glucose. You can also see, um, you know, how a poor night of sleep or a really good night of sleep affects your fasting glucose. So really dynamically understanding how your behaviors are affecting glucose. And the, the other reason it's quite important is because it measures glycemic variability. So glycemic variability is essentially how spiky your glucose is throughout the day. Really for optimal health, we want to probably have flat and low glucose levels, you know, maybe gentle rolling hills up and down as the glucose rises a little bit after a meal and comes down, but we do not want sharp peaks and valleys, you know, stalagmites and stalactites. We don't want that. That's bad for health. When that's happening, when you have high glycemic variability, you know that a few things are happening. One, high glucose is going to trigger inflammation. It's going to trigger oxidative stress. It can trigger the process of glycation, which is where high glucose in the blood uh, causes glucose molecules to stick to different things in the body, like proteins, and potentially cause dysfunction in, in, in how these proteins work. So, so alone, glucose can cause those processes, inflammation, oxidative stress, glycation. But it's also, of course, going to be stimulating the pancreas to make insulin and to produce more insulin, like Ben talked about on his episode. And when that happens, that's a normal process. Your glucose goes up, your pancreas makes insulin, the insulin allows you to take glucose up into the cells. But when that's happening all the time, when you have high glycemic variability, it means you're spiking over and over and over again, multiple times per day, maybe because you've been told to have snacks many times throughout the day, which was common recommendations in the past, you know, your insulin is constantly going to be peaking. And what that's telling to your body, that is molecular inflammation to your body for every single cell that it's essentially turning on the pathways that insulin turns on, which is, you know, a lot of vital pathways, but when they go on overdrive, it can be a problem. It's a pro growth signal. Um, and you just, you just don't want it to be on all the time. It's a fat storage signal. It tells your, your cells to take excess glucose and put it into fat in the cells. It stops you from burning fat. It also makes your cells 
insulin resistant. And so when that signal of insulin is being constantly triggered, our cells are get a little confused. They're like, why is there so much insulin around? And they actually kind of put on the brake and they say, this is too much. We can't take in all these substrates. Let's slow down the signal. And they become less responsive to insulin, which means that you have to make more of it. And then, you know, your, your insulin levels are going to rise, become hyperinsulinemic. And as you know, you guys talked about on the episode a few weeks ago, that has lots of implications for health. So really by using continuous monitoring for the first time ever, we have the ability to understand glycemic variability, which is a metric that is hugely important to health. It's an independent predictor of poor health outcomes down the road, separate from just a high fasting glucose. Um, And it gives you a lot more granularity into how specific behaviors are affecting glucose in real time that you can then potentially modify. Yeah, and this is really the, changing the way that we understand nutritional science too, because we've been looking at things like the glycemic index and the glycemic load for a while to help us understand how sh- how how certain foods are going to impact our blood sugar. For example, something that's high has a high glycemic index is going to spike your blood sugar quickly, but then typically it drops pretty quick. And if it has a high glycemic load, um, you know it may not spike it quickly. Something like oatmeal, for example you know, classic kind of higher glycemic load where it's not a quick spike, but it's going to keep your uh, blood sugar elevated for a longer period of time and your insulin elevated for a longer period of time. However, what we're realizing here with the continuous blood glucose uh, management or this tool is that certain foods are going to react in, in different ways, right? So it's not really textbook style. We can't just say, okay, you know, this banana is high glycemic, so it's going to spike your blood sugar. Um, everybody, people are responding differently. And there may be foods that, you know, normally we would think this is very blood sugar stabilizing, but for you, it's not, right? And your body is going to respond with stress and it's going to cause a higher amount of blood sugar release and possibly hypoglycemia, reactive hypoglycemia, where your blood sugar drops too low, maybe two hours later. So can you explain more about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think you, you nailed that. You know, it really, <laughs> so we are rapidly shifting in terms of our conception of what glycemic index means. Like you mentioned, there has been this paradigm that there's this standard characteristic of a specific food that is like, this is how much this food is going to raise the blood sugar and how quickly in a person. And that's, you know, sort of uniform. But what we're figuring out is that that's actually not true because our personal response to a specific carbohydrate is going to be very different. And how that carbohydrate translates to glucose in the bloodstream is actually a very complex pathway. And a lot of this research came out of this amazing paper that was published in 2015 in Cell from the Weissman Institute in Israel, which was called Personalized Nutrition by Prediction of Glycemic Responses. And this paper basically put continuous glucose monitors on tons of healthy, non-diabetic individuals and then fed them standardized meals. So they all ate the same thing. And they, they looked at their glucose after those meals. And under the glycemic index paradigm, you would think that every single person would respond you know, the exact same way to the same food, that everyone needs a piece of white bread and their, their blood glucose all goes up a certain amount and comes down. They're all healthy. You know, it'll all be the same, but that's the opposite of what happened. Basically what they found is that people could have equal and 
like they could actually people people had a very wide spectrum of their responses to the exact same food and when you give two people two different foods they could have equal and opposite reactions to those foods so you could give someone a banana and a cookie me and you you know you get a banana and a cookie i get a banana and a cookie and i could spike on a cookie and not spike on a banana and you could do the exact opposite right. and what's super cool is that then they then went further and they said well what is the thing that predicts how how people are going to respond to these different foods. And some of the key factors were microbiome composition. So they, mm. they stool sampled everyone multiple times during the study, and they found that composition of microbiome was a uh, predictor of how people would respond. Um, also things like anthropomorphic features. So really like body type, which makes a lot of sense because we know that certain body types are more associated with insulin resistance, um, visceral adiposity and waist to hip ratio can have an, can, is, is well correlated with level of insulin resistance. So that one makes quite a bit of sense, basically that you're how insulin sensitive you are would have an impact on how you respond and other things like activity and sleep, like you mentioned, um, those were also factors as well. So really what's more likely is that each of us have our own personal glycemic index for every single food based on our own unique physiology. But even upping the complexity a little bit, probably that glycemic index changes day to day based yeah. on other factors that are affecting glucose. Um, and it's, it's very sort of um, modifiable uh, based on other aspects of, of our health and our behaviors that do impact glucose because it's not it's not just about food. It's not just about what we put in our mouths. It's also the broader metabolic context. And some of the big factors that we've already touched on are sleep quality, how much stress we have, and then what physical activity we're doing. Those things just translate directly into how we process glucose. So one day you might eat a banana on poor sleep, no exercise, high stress, and have an 80-point glucose spike. The next day you might have eight hours of sleep, you've done your meditation, you've done your Peloton workout, and you go up 15 points. So that's a different glycemic index for each day. So it's pretty fascinating. And what's awesome is that by wearing a monitor and testing out your favorite foods, and then testing out um, different permutations of that food, so pairing it with exercise, pairing it with, you know, a meditation session, you can actually start to really build your intuition about what works for you. Um, and then, you know, more broadly, and we can, we can talk about this too, but like how you even, what you even do with the food and the context of the food, it's very rare that we eat a food in isolation, which is how the glycemic index works. It's mm. like, you yeah. know, 50 grams of whole wheat mm. pasta. This is what happened. It's all based on a 50 gram of, um, they basically looked at, uh, what happened to glucose levels after intake of 50 grams of carbohydrates of a very specific food. But when we pair foods, it also changes our reaction mm. to them. So, um, mixing carbs with protein and fat can change the glycemic index. Usually actually adding protein and fat diminishes and blunts our glucose spike to a food. But again, that's individual. And then, um, the timing of when we eat. So something we eat in the morning, will probably cause a bigger glucose, I'm sorry, a smaller glucose spike than something we eat late at night. And so it's just, you know, long story short, it's, um, it's highly complex. There's very, there's a lot of variables impacting our personal glycemic index. And it's, it's really interesting to figure, we now can figure it out for ourselves with uh, continuous monitoring and know what's actually really answer for the first time ever. Like this is this food is healthy for me. This food is the right food for my body. And this is how I should eat it, which is something we really had to do trial and error on for the rest of history. So yeah, it's an exciting yeah. 
Absolutely. Well, that's such a great, great explanation there. And what I found with my wife and I, who, who have both worn these, is that it can really, our blood sugar was really impacted by sleep quality, by, because uh, we also wear aura rings to track our sleep. Uh, stress levels were, were a huge factor. And, um, you know, I have kind of this guided meditation device called the brain tap. When I put that on, it would significantly drop my blood sugar. Uh, you know, and, and I'd feel great, right. Coming out of that, I felt a lot, a lot more refreshed and relaxed. Um, so some simple things like that. I mean, uh, those are bigger players than I thought just stress, even though I didn't feel stressed, um, just kind of working intensely was, uh, was causing higher blood sugar levels. So yeah, it's really great to get that instant feedback and see those types of things and then be able to make some, some different modifications, right? Like taking some time to just take some deep breaths, um, you know, to help get things back under control and reduce the stress hormones just plays a really big role. Absolutely. Um, I think it's such a great, great point, the sleep and the stress, um, and their impact on glucose and, and realizing that just like really simple, um, behaviors like getting a better night's sleep or doing some breathing can have such an impact on it. And it's, it's quite interesting because really these are, you know, with the stress, for instance, like our body developed adaptive responses to help us in times of stress. And unfortunately in our modern society, we're, we're almost, these are becoming maladaptive for us. So you think back way back when, you know, ancestral times when really stress was probably more likely a physical or corporeal threat. You know, we had to run, run from the lion, you know, is the classic example who knows if that happened very often, but, but, you know, you're, you're in a physical threat and in that time of stress, your body releases, you know, cortisol and catecholamine hormones, and it tells the body you got to run. And so your muscles need quick energy and the quickest form of energy in our body is glucose. And we have little bits of it stored for moments like that when we it's stored in our liver and our muscles and um, our body, when it's stressed says, okay, dump this from the liver, get into the bloodstream, get it to the muscles. And so, you know, you, you often with a high stress experience, will see even in a fasted state, the glucose rise during a stressful event. And that was because our body was trying to help us get the energy it needed to run away from something really. Um, now our threats are generally not physical. We generally don't need to like activate our muscles when we're having a stressful conversation or get a stressful email. And so that's really not necessary anymore. And yet that's happening all the time. We have so many low grade stressors that are just constantly that the pings of the phone, the honking of the cars, the emails coming in, you know, the digital stuff that's just constantly sort of getting our cortisol on alert and we don't need that glucose. So what's happening is that we're, we're kind of chronically elevating our glucose more than it needs to be and exposing ourselves to all that glucose load just unnecessarily. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting how that's, you know, with many things like our modern world is kind of co-opting our evolutionary advantages and, and turning them against us. And we, we have to sort of rise above that to, to get up, you know, on top of it. I just wanted to interrupt this podcast and tell you about these keto cookies that taste incredible. I mean, it took this company over a year to formulate this product to ensure that it did not cause your blood sugar to spike, your ketones to drop, your insulin to spike and promote inflammation in the body, which most products, most you know, sweet treats, even low carb treats actually do. I know I've tried so many low carb cookies and they threw me out of ketosis. 
And so these keto cookies are actually formulated with ingredients that are not going to impact your blood sugar in the same way. You've got things like grass-fed butter, almond flour, coconut flour, coconut oil, egg. It's got Asatia gum, which is actually a great prebiotic fiber. It's got grass-fed collagen, which is incredible for your skin, your hair, your nails, your gut lining, and your joints. So if you're looking for a great keto dessert, you know, these are things that you probably could get away with eating every day for, for a lot of you guys and do well. But if you're just looking for something as like an occasional uh, treat and you don't, you're, you're tired of trying to make these things, these different uh, keto dessert recipes on your own, then pick these up. They're the Perfect Keto Keto Cookies. So simply go to perfectketo.com forward slash drjockers and use the coupon code Dr. Jockers, all one word. So just D-R-J-O-C-K-E-R-S to save 15% off of these today. Again, that's perfectketo.com forward slash drjockers. Use the coupon code Dr. Jockers to save 15% off. You guys are going to love these cookies. I'm telling you what, you might as well get a few cases because you're going to love them. Your family's going to love them and uh, you might as well stock up. All right. Back to the podcast. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm really interested in what you guys are doing with Levels Health because you guys have created a metabolic score, right? Can you explain more about that? Because it's one thing like, you know, so the the continuous blood glucose monitor you can get from Freestyle Libre, like that's probably the most popular brand, I would imagine. They've got an app that you can watch your blood sugar and how it's going, but it's it's another thing, the 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 more in-depth analysis that you guys are doing um, really helps somebody understand how they're responding to the foods and the, the environment that they're in. Can you explain more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, so there are um, continuous glucose monitors, you know, on the market, and these have been around for over a decade. They're FDA-approved devices that are for the management of type one and type two diabetes. So, these have been a game changer for the diabetic population because instead of having to prick your finger three, four, or five times a day, um, you can see your glucose all day long. And so, these these devices, you know, they eliminate the finger pricks, and they're amazing. Um, but as we know, you know, more and more about metabolic health and how it is so important for us to really stay on top of this earlier rather than later. These are, you know, diabetes, type two diabetes is a largely preventable condition. So having insight into our metabolic health far earlier is really the time to, to get on top of it. Like stay, stay low and flat with your glucose throughout your life. And, you know, never have to walk into the doctor's office and say like, you know, here's a surprise. Like, you know, where you're at on that metabolic spectrum and can, you know, continuously work to improve. But these devices were really never meant to be behavior change tools. They weren't meant to guide us to really what the right behaviors are. And as we've talked about, there's a lot of complexity to it. There's many fat, there's many input variables that can affect glucose from, you know, the nature of our meals, what we're pairing them with when we're timing them, and then all the other lifestyle factors. And so just having the raw glucose data stream <clears throat> isn't necessarily going to push us to really intuit what we need to do to make changes. Yeah. And so that's where the company that I've co-founded levels, that's where we're really trying to fill that need to make understanding this glucose data stream super intuitive and to help people develop their metabolic intuition and get excited about how to move the needle on a lot of these, these different modifiable aspects of glucose control. And so that's the software that we've developed and really trying to get 
this mainstream and, and people to think about it similar to they think about their other health tracking tools. You know, we all are these days wearing the Aura, the Fitbit, the Whoop, people have their smart beds, you know, the eight sleep, you know, we're tracking HRV with Aura and HeartMath and Leaf Therapeutics. These companies are amazing because what they're doing is they're tapping into a, a continuous data stream with then an overlay to motivate you, to make it social, to give you insight into the variables of how you can change it. You know, Whoop and Aura will tell you what to do um, to, to get your sleep better, to get your HRV better. And this is just where there's a huge, there's a vacuum and a void around glucose. We don't have that. So that's what we've created. Um, and we really, we know that to, um, you know, we're dealing with a metabolic health epidemic in our country. Like I mentioned, 88% of people with a sign of metabolic dysfunction and 128 million Americans with diabetes or prediabetes. That's like a third of the country and 74% of Americans overweight or obese. So this is monumental. And, you know, to really move the needle on those crises, it's, it's coming down to consistent day in and day out personalized behaviors and that are right for your body that move the needle on health. And so that's where I think, um, digital health and software is really going is to help people understand their body, make the choices and then do them consistently. And that's, so that's what we're doing for glucose. And that's what the, that's what level software is. Yeah, absolutely. And, and basically you guys have an analysis system, like an algorithm that based on, you know, what the person ate and how their blood sugar responded to that, that scores it from zero to 10 as well, which makes it really easy for the user. Cause user doesn't really understand necessarily, you know, it's like, you got to really, um, micromanage how that blood sugar responded and it can be tough to analyze, but when you get a score, I think all of us understands kind of that gamification and we all understand scoring right from school and, and just our upbringing, so I think that really helps us understand how we're responding to the foods that we're eating and the environment that we're in too. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's really what our goal has been is to make this as simple as possible for people. Um, and, and so that, that really what's has driven some of our, our new metrics that we're adding. So right now, like you, if you just walk into the doctor, they'll say your fasting glucose is 98 or your fasting glucose is 115. No one, it's hard to know exactly what that yeah. And what does it mean if your glucose goes to 130 after a meal? Well, the beauty is the literature, the scientific literature tells us a lot about the implications of these fluctuations, but that's, you know, thousands of pages of papers that, you know, we're not going to be thinking, you know, about that every time we take a bite. And so our goal is really to condense it into a, a one to 10 score that when you eat, sit down and eat a meal, like two hours later, you have a grade essentially for that. Was it an A? Was it a B? Um, and that's taking into account a number of aspects of what happened to your glucose curve after the meal that we know are associated with better or worse health outcomes. So there's a lot of different things you can learn from just that, that little curve that happens after a meal. So some of the things that you can look at that actually make, tell us something about metabolic health is how high the spike went. So like the peak and the Delta from baseline, where did you start? Where did you go? The second thing is how long did it take to come down? Did you go straight up and straight down or did you go up and you stay elevated for a while? How spiky were you coming down? Was it kind of like, you know, you were jumping like a yo-yo as you were coming down or was it just sort of a very smooth curve? Even how long it takes you to get to the peak after a meal makes a difference. All of these things have been sort of looked at as, as proxies of our overall metabolic health. So in creating our um, our scoring systems, we take into account those things and really do analytics on that curve to give people just this very simple grade. And so 
you know, 10 is an A plus essentially zero is not good. Um, and we really want to encourage people to stick with seven, eights, nines, and tens. That would be sort of like the passing grade and what, you know, sort of the green zone. And I've been fascinated by seeing our users, you know, it's, it, 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 these, these simple scoring also really lends to people being able to share this information and be excited about it. Like I got a 10, I had a day of straight tens and people love sharing that on social and seeing that. So it is very cool to see, um, sort of this community element arise around a biomarker that never has really been one that we've seen tracked before. People love to share about steps and their sleep data, but now there's this new, biomarker that we can really rally around and support each other and have community around. So that's the, that's the meal score. And that's really that, that zero to 10. And then you also mentioned the metabolic fitness score. This is a more, um, a longer term metric that like grades your day. So how are you doing overall? And so that when you look at the full 24 hour period, we can capture a lot of additional sort of interesting data points from the curve. So what is your baseline glucose? I.e., when you um, go up and come down after a meal, where do you sort of rest during the day, your basal level? And then what is your glucose first thing in the morning, more of your fasting glucose? Um, how much does your glucose rise first in the morning, right, right when you wake up? There's a phenomenon called the dawn effect, which is where when we wake up from rest, we get a cortisol surge to help us get out of bed. And that's um, tradition. It's a, sort of a stress signal, but it really, what it's doing, it's helping our body mobilize to get up out of bed. And that can cause a little bit of a glucose rise. So we can look at that and how much you're rising in the morning from cortisol. Um, what is your overnight levels? So, um, you can take all of that into account and kind of give a more composite picture of the whole, the whole day and sort of, um, uh, so where you're at on that spectrum and that's the metabolic fitness score. So those are two things that we've developed to just help make it easier for people to understand um, understand what's happening with their choices and and hopefully move to make you know choices that that get their scores up. Yeah, and I think it really does too because I think we're we're naturally wired to want some level of reward, and food gives us an instant reward. We eat food we enjoy, we get a dopamine spike, we feel great, right? It just feels good. We don't really realize the impact it might be having on our body. But when we're able to look at this and kind of be able to see what our score is, like our meal score and, and whatnot, now it gives us extra incentive because we're going to get a, a, another dopamine hit when you know we have a good score, right? And so we have that sort of accountability and, and instant feedback that we're able to get that is going to make us, um, it's going to give us more reward, more instant reward for making good choices. Like, you know, you, you don't think about weight gain in one meal, right? Or weight loss through one meal. You know, that those are things that happen over time. Um, same with your energy, same with, you know, all of these other elements of how we feel. We typically, these are more long, you know, they're the more consistent lifestyle habits over time. But by able to get like an immediate impact score like that, I think that's going to really help incentivize people. So I know certainly for myself, I'm that I'm wired like that, where I like to have some level of immediate um, score to let me know, okay, I did good here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Absolutely. And I think this comes down to the concept of closed loop biofeedback, which is extremely effective for behavior change. And that's really the founding principle of this company is that when there is a lag time between what you do and what the result is, it is, it is yes. much harder to then change that behavior because it is very easy to misattribute the action 
um, to the reaction or risk attribute the reaction to the action if there's a longer time period. Right. A lot more variables come into play. So the tighter you can make that, um, the better in terms of behavior change. And nutrition has been notorious yeah. for having open loop feedback and highly high variability and complexity in understanding the relationship between the choice you're making and what's happening. Traditionally, what we've had is one, stepping on the scale the next morning, yeah. you get on the scale and you're like, okay, well, I'm two pounds heavier. Is this water weight? Is this my hormones? Is this the cake I had at 2 PM yesterday? Like what, what is this? You know? So that's, that's very challenging to look back and say like, what, what can I do differently? Um, it's sort of like, well, do everything differently, but you just don't know. The second one we've had is that yearly fasting glucose test at the yeah. doctor's office with your annual physical. And so last year, fasting glucose was 87. This year it's 89. What does that mean? You know, it, right. it, it really means nothing. And so it's, it doesn't help you actually change things. Your, your doctor might say, oh, your fasting glucose has gone up a little bit. Like I'd watch your diet. I, you know, I try and exercise more, but that is, that is essentially ineffective. Um, and so, you know, and then of course we also have our subjective feeling. So you could have a meal and you could really tap into how you're feeling after a meal. And I think that's wonderful. That's essentially somatic awareness. And, um, and I'm a huge proponent of that in terms of, you know, knowing how something's affecting us, but that is also a tough one, you know, because do we really know if our glucose is, you know, spiking after a meal? I think you can get to the, the point where you do actually have a sense of that, but I think the biofeedback with actual the CGM helps you gain that type of somatic awareness. So um, this is a term that I think there's a term called interoception, which I think is really relevant to um, continuous glucose monitoring. And interoception is, is similar to the concept of somatic awareness, but it's basically an understanding of something that's going on inside your body, like a quantifiable metric and being able to have an awareness of it. So yeah. you can think about heartbeat. People who have good heartbeat interoception are people who can like sit quietly and just say like, this is how fast my heart is beating and they right. can you know, thump it on the table. There's other people who have no awareness of how, how fast their heart mm -hmm. is beating. And interestingly, people who do have more interoception about something like heart rate have lower rates of anxiety and depression. They have better cardiovascular outcomes. There's something about being able to hear what's happening inside your body that is good for health. I think we all intuitively know this, but in our current modern world, it is so much harder to hear our internal body signals. We've got a lot of distractions. You know, we're very screen facing, we're on the go, um, we're tired, we're staying up late. We're also exposed to these crazy hyperpalatable foods that are basically Franken foods. They're not real and they, they hijack our normal reward circuitry. So we don't really know how we're feeling because we feel you know, we're getting like essentially a drug surge when we get sugar, you know, um, and processed and refined foods. So, so the idea of really true body awareness is challenging. And when you pair um, a, a tool, like a biofeedback tool, whether it's heart rate or glucose, you can actually improve your interoception capabilities. So when they put heart rate training on people, they take people and they give them a heart rate tracker and they help them see it and understand their heart rate. They become better at their interoception. Yeah. And I think that that actually happens as well with glucose. As I've tracked my own glucose, I've been wearing a continuous glucose monitor for a year now. I am very sensitive now to 
what is happening inside my body, even if I don't look at my glucose. I know when my glucose is going up, I know when it's going down and I can just feel it. But that's because I've had so many instances of this trifecta of an action, seeing the data and feeling the subjective experience. And now I can just triangulate those three things naturally. Um, And our CEO, Sam, um, he, his biggest experience with this was, um, he put on a CGM and he had his normal breakfast, which was oatmeal. And he didn't check his glucose for a while, but he had a big bowl of oatmeal, which he's always been told is like a heart healthy food. It's a whole grain, da, da, da. And later in the morning, and he also had some coffee and later in the morning, he felt his normal, you know, early afternoon, like late morning, early afternoon, kind of energy slump, kind of felt tired, kind of felt a little moody. And he checked his glucose and he looked back at his data and it turned out he'd spiked to 200, which is super high. And then it crashed down to like 60. So he had a huge hyperglycemic spike and then a hypoglycemic episode. And the reason that happens is because when you have a big glucose spike like that, your body throws the insulin on that Mm -hmm. and you soak up so much glucose that you end up overshooting and dipping. And that can lead to anxiety, low energy. So he's like, oh my God, like I've been always attributing this like morning slump to sleep quality or maybe my caffeine, but like I'm going on a glucose roller coaster. And so basically for the past year, Sam's been eating like avocado and scrambled eggs for breakfast has zero glucose spike with that. And like, it's totally revolutionized his mornings. And he, this misattribution that we so often do when we don't have closed loop biofeedback is, is instantly gone. And what's also interesting about that is that when you can create that trifecta of awareness of action, metric biofeedback and subjective experience, it also becomes much less, much less painful to part with things in your life. Like if you loved oatmeal, once you see that, it's so clear, it's so obvious that it's not like, um, upsetting to like, say, I'm not gonna, you know, eat this anymore. I'm going to eat it differently to, to have a better outcome because you have understanding. And it's so much of, I think the difficulty with dieting and with adopting quote unquote, healthy diets or other behaviors is that we don't actually know if they're working or doing something. There's such a lag time between whether we actually have the outcome we want on, you know, the scale or our cholesterol test or our fasting glucose test, that it's ultimately very challenging to adopt these behaviors. But when you can just like see the instant response, it's, it's, it's a lot easier to, to sort of part. And I kind of like, I liken this to um, food poisoning. Like when you yeah. eat clams and you have food poisoning, like you never want to eat a clam again. It's not like you're sad to give up clams. You're just like, oh, of course I would never eat them again because I don't want this to happen again. It's a similar um, unemotional feeling, I think, when you have the glucose data. So, yeah, immediate feedback, closed loop biofeedback, like you talked about. Yeah, so important. So, how close are we to being able to make these continuous blood glucose monitors affordable for people to be utilizing all the time? Because I know, you know, really up until very recent, the only way to get it is a um, is a medical prescription. I believe that's still the case, right? And then on top of that, they're they're very expensive, especially if you don't have insurance. And I believe insurance is only going to cover it if you have diabetes or or uh, type one or type two. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. So these devices are still prescription only in the United States. Most of them are actually over the counter in almost every other country in the world. Which makes a lot of sense because yeah. we can also walk into the pharmacy and buy a yeah. finger stick glucose monitor. So right. you can kind of create your own glu- continuous glucose monitor by just pricking your finger, you know, 50 times Did a day. you say that only in the United States, they're prescription? That there, may be, 
other some other countries, but in the majority of other countries, they're over the counter. Oh wow, yeah, very interesting. Yeah, um, so here, like with with our company, we have the software, but we've also have a telemedicine network that's evaluating people yeah. for these um, for these prescription devices, and then we fulfill them through a partner pharmacy because. Um, it is difficult to go into your primary care doctor office, doctor's office and say, hey, I want this device. A lot of people um, aren't primed yet to really be thinking about glucose for the non-diabetic use case because we're so trained to think about glucose only in the context of diabetes, of this really late stage right. manifestation. So that's one of the things we wanted to help with was access. Um, but you're right, they are very expensive. And I think that that um, price point is going to come down rapidly over the next few years for a couple of reasons. One, there's a lot more interest in this non-diabetic market. And I think the demand is going to, going to grow. Um, and that's going to change the economics of it. There's also many, many hardware companies coming down the pipeline, um, mm. creating new types of glucose sensing technologies. There's some really, really cool things. Um, and so, so the hardware, um, is rapidly advancing. And I think we're going to see a lot more FDA approved players on the market, and that's going to bring the price point down too. And so, um, so yeah, I think it's going to be a very exciting next couple of years in terms of glucose. Yeah, sure. What is the typical price range now for continuous blood glucose monitor? Yeah. So, um, out of, so like you mentioned, they are currently only covered for people with type one or type two diabetes yeah. by insurance. Um, and even in that world, um, I've heard from many diabetic individuals that even getting access to the sensors is somewhat difficult through insurance, which is always a surprise to me because from a, from a cost saving standpoint of helping people manage their disease and manage their medications more effectively, these are, these are proven to have, um, you know, ex, you know, just superior efficacy to finger sticks. So, um, I'm hoping that will change, you know, just general coverage and access for, for the diabetic population. Um, and if you're just buying it out of pocket, um, they range from about, um, 60 to a hundred dollars per device. And each device lasts on the arm for 14 days. And I'm talking specifically about the Abbott freestyle Libre, which is yeah. one of the most commonly prescribed versions. Um, so it's just a little quarter that's mm -hmm. disposable that it sticks on the back of your arm and you throw it away after 14 days. And those range from about 60 to a hundred. And the reason I say it ranges is because every pharmacy you walk into mm -hmm. to get these, it's going to have a slightly different price, which again, is just a a strange function of our, of our healthcare economics in this yeah. country. But, um, but I think that price point is going to get down quite a bit, um, in the coming years. Yeah. And I think you guys are really leading the way in that, <clears throat> making it a lot easier for people to access and people can go to levelshealth.com and are you guys still in beta testing or are you now working with the general public? Yeah, we are in beta testing right now. So we um, have had about a thousand people go through our program mm -hmm. and we are planning for a full launch at the end of 2020, where you can just come to the website and, and sign up. Great, great. So is there like a waiting list right now that people can get on? There is. Yeah, there's a waiting list. So what I would recommend is if, if people are interested um, to come to www.levelshealth.com and you can sign up for the wait list, which will um, keep you in the loop of when we have access available. And then um, it'll also get you on the newsletter and yeah. me and a team of other um, physicians and um, PhD experts are writing voraciously on the Levels blog about these topics um, and about glucose really targeted towards the non-diabetic individual, how glucose relates to 
athletic performance, fitness, endurance, um, general health now, you know, prevention of future disease, um, just some really, really interesting topics there, personalized nutrition. Um, so yeah, definitely recommend that if, if people want to learn more. Yeah, I would definitely recommend it for our listeners. I mean, it's pretty easy to, to go out and spend a few hundred dollars to get a lab test done. Um, you know, most really good lab tests are going to cost you a few hundred dollars. So you can use that same money and, and, and do a month on, you know, a Freestyle Libre utilizing your guy's system to really be able to check your metabolic score and get that biofeedback. So you really learn a lot about how your body's responding to things. And then if you did that, like for one month out of a year, and then started practicing that throughout the year, I think it would be, you know, just a great way to improve your health and give you that, that feedback that you want that you really can't test, um, you know, with standard, standard blood work. So I would Excellent. recommend that. Thank you so much. Yeah. yeah. We're, uh, we'd be happy to hear from anyone who wants to learn more. So. Yeah, for sure. And then last question, how close do you think we are to getting a continuous insulin measurement? I would love that. Oh, it's my dream. <laughs> yeah. It's a much harder molecule to test. Yeah. Um, you know, glucose is so simple with the glucose oxidase reaction and insulin yeah. is a large protein and no one's cracked this code yet. Many people have tried. And I think we are many, many years out from seeing mm. that. Although I think it would be absolutely game changing for, for yeah. health. Um, the good thing is that glucose is a close proxy to insulin in most people. Um, and I do think, um, you know, getting a fasting insulin, continuous insulin monitoring would yeah. be amazing. But I think um, working with a functional medicine doctor, or if your, you know, normal primary care doctor is open to doing it, like I would just implore anyone listening to ask for that fasting yes. test and just, you know, um, and see that's just such such a great play, way to understand sort of what what the last 10 years of, you know, your lifestyle have been kind of doing to your overall metabolic health. Because, you know, if I would say if you're between less than six, you know, two and five, six, yeah. like really awesome, your insulin is low, you're probably not dealing with much insulin resistance, you know, six to 20, you're, you're, you're starting to see some times of time, some um, movement of your insulin kind of creeping up at baseline, probably because it's been, you know, a lot of spikes for years and years and years, your cells have been exposed to lots of insulin and had to kind of get the baseline up there. And then above that, you know, uh, you know, above 20 or more, probably dealing with some more severe, potentially insulin resistance. So those are sort of generalities. And I think everyone has a different range because these have not been, these ranges yeah. for insulin have not been standardized yet, but it kind of gives you a sense of like the long-term view. Um, but what's cool is that with using a sensor, like a, a continuous glucose monitor, basically the way you can think about, um, how it affects your insulin is that if you can keep those spikes minimized day after day, essentially like you're going to the gym, it's instead of going to the gym and working your regular fitness, you're working your metabolic fitness. And the, the thing we're doing there is keeping glucose spikes lower. Yeah. You can imagine you're keeping your insulin lower each day right. and every day you're keeping your insulin lower, your cells become, they wake up again to that insulin signal and you become more insulin sensitive. And then your pancreas can turn down its, you know, faucet of insulin. And so, so basically each day you're using that CGM to keep the spikes down. You can assume that you're keeping that insulin exposure lower, letting your cells wake up, become more insulin responsive, giving your pancreas a break. And over time, what I, what would you expect is that 
the next time you get your fasting insulin checked, it'd be a lot lower. Yeah. So that's kind of the big picture. I know, I know, you know, but just to kind of paint the picture for, for everyone. Yeah, listening. but I think that that is so important because I've seen a lot of people with hemoglobin A1Cs that were very healthy, yet they had weight loss resistance. They couldn't lose weight, inflammation in their body. And then when we test fasting insulin, fasting insulin is 12, but their hemoglobin A1C is 5.0. So their blood sugar is staying down, but they're producing a lot of insulin in order to do that. And, yeah. and they're most likely having a lot of little spikes in that, in that range. And so, uh, so the continuous blood glucose monitoring can really help with that. Well, in a resilient body, there's, yeah. you know, the pancreas can do a whole lot of work to, to force the glucose to be in a specific right. level before we sort of that process breaks and we start to see that, that fasting glucose or that A1C going up. So yeah. I, a lot of people say, and I think Ben Beckman says this in his book or, or, or maybe on some podcasts I've heard, but that insulin is probably elevated predating glucose elevations yeah. by like 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because we're just compensating and forcing that glucose into the cells, keeping the glucose somewhat stable appearing um, on our yearly lab tests by just producing more insulin. So, no. so yeah, so it's, a, it's a, it's a great, it's a great test and we can, um, move that whole ship in the right direction by improving our insulin sensitivity, by keeping our, our glucose lower. So, um, it's an exciting time that like, we're able to kind of put some of these pieces together, even though the technology and the, the tests aren't, you know, there's still going to be a lot of progress down the road. Like you said, continuous insulin monitors, continuous inflammation monitors, all this stuff, but we can certainly triangulate the issue pretty much better now than we could, you know, five years ago. So. Well, it's been such a fascinating conversation and I just want to really acknowledge you guys for all the great work that you're doing. And, and Dr. Casey, you're a great spokesperson for the company. You really have a great way, great, elegant and sophisticated way of explaining all these topics and I know I learned a lot listening to this and I know our, our listeners have gotten a lot of value out of it as well. So thanks again for your time. And you guys can check out levelshealth.com. We'll have a link, of course, in the show notes, but check that out. And I know Dr. Casey has been doing a lot of uh, podcast interviews. So uh, anytime you see her out there, make sure you download and listen to, to her podcasts and, uh, and interviews because she's, she's on the ball with this and really uh, is a pioneer in leading the way to get this testing out to more people. So thanks again, Dr. Casey. Thank you so much. All right. And so for those of you listeners, um, definitely leave us a review and any sort of feedback you have on this. And we'll see you guys in a future podcast. Well, that's all for this show. And I want to thank you again for spending your valuable time with me today. And if there was something you heard in this interview that you have questions on or you want to dive into deeper, then drjockers.com is the best place to go. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider taking just a quick moment and giving us a great review. Your reviews help us influence more people and transform more lives. And if you took something valuable away from this episode, then please share it with someone in your life you know it can help. We'll see you soon on a future podcast. Be blessed, everybody.